and welcome to the Northridge Vineyard Evening Community Podcast. We're a church community in Sydney, Australia who are passionate about pursuing God together and seeing the world changed by His love. We hope this message challenges and inspires you. For more talks and other resources, please visit our website, www.northridge.org.au. Hello friends, if I haven't met you yet, uh, my name's Chris. Uh, Jen and I are currently the pastors, but not for long, of the evening community here at Northridge. I'm sorry, I'll stop bringing it up. I know it's a sore point still. Um, ooh, we're getting lots of kind of funky. Rob's on it. It's all good. Um, as Jen said, we're kind of tackling some of the more challenging passages in Scripture this evening. Um, you know, sometimes we come across these verses in the Bible and you just go, what do I do with that? Like how, and you know, the, so often I think the natural response is to just keep reading and just pretend they're not there. But I think it's actually so good to, to go for it, to actually address some of these topics. And so that's what we're doing tonight. And if it goes terribly, we're leaving soon. So <laughs> sorry, I promise I'll stop bringing it up. Um, and also, can I also just say, preaching this way is really nostalgic for me. When I first came along to the evening community 17 years ago, uh, there were like six people in a classroom uh, at the Bush School in Wurunga, and we would always preach this way. There would always be someone sitting on a chair, and that's one of the things that first uh, drew me to Northridge was just the kind of casual, no-shoes kind of attitude. So, uh, so now that we've had a bit of fun, we're going to get real super heavy for a while, um, before we dive into tonight's topic, I just want to set up the series a little bit more, which Sam and Andrew before have beautifully done. But um, personally, for me, uh, the reason that we're doing this series, uh, it actually comes out of a place of, of honestly pain for Jen and I, because in the last few years, we have watched some of our close childhood friends who we grew up with, who we went to church with, who were instrumental in helping us discover Jesus. We watched them walk away from church or walk away from the faith altogether. And it's been really, really hard to watch. Um, and thinking, chatting to some of these people, which we do, chatting to some of these people and understanding what happened, why, you know, why can't you go back to church um, there's not one reason, I, I don't want to lump everything into one category, but one common theme that comes up again and again is that so often in their experience of church, there's a big gap between what people say or what people preach about from the front or what they talk about in Bible study and the way they actually live their lives. You know, I think one of the reasons we've ended up in this place is because for a long time, when we think about Christianity... When we think about our faith, we think of it as a set of doctrines that we have to believe. And if you believe the right things, then you'll go to heaven when you die. Now, certainly, believing the right things, certainly seeking the truth is really important. I'm not trying to say that it's not. But if the things that we believe don't change the way that we live, what are we doing if the things we believe don't change the way we live, if we're not at least making a concerted effort to actually practice what we talk about on a Sunday or what we read in the Bible, then it makes sense that people wouldn't want to be a part of the church. You know, when we read through Matthew chapters 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, it leaves absolutely no room for this shallow kind of faith, this conceptual kind of faith. It, it transforms... 
Jesus transforms our beliefs, but not just the things we believe. He transforms the things we, we, we think and the things we say and the things we do. And so in this series, as, uh, as we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, it is my firm belief that, that the things that we believe, the teaching of Jesus, the way of Jesus, it should transform the way we live that our lives shouldn't look different anymore, and that we're not just invited into a decision to to put our trust in Jesus, although that's wonderful. We're invited into this lifelong process of becoming more like him, of growing in Christian maturity, and that every week and every month and every year, we should be able to look back and see how much we've learned and how much we've changed and grown. You know, this... We're not entirely sure yet, but this may well be the last series that uh, I organize for our community. Uh, and as I was thinking about that fact, I was like, what is the one thing that I would leave us with? And it's this, that I really believe that when we encounter Jesus, when we, we meet the risen Jesus, when we read his words and apply them to our lives, that it looks different. You know, that we live, live lives that, that bring transformation. And so that's what this series really is all about. Now, two weeks ago, or sorry, three weeks ago, Andrew kicked us off in a kind of conversational format, which is a bit of fun. And we talked about uh, the concept of blessing. We looked at the beginning of Matthew 5. There's this really outrageous passage where Jesus proclaims that all of these really unexpected people are blessed, are favored by God. And it's this kind of, if, if you think of like the Sermon on the Mount as like a speech, it's like the kind of, big controversial opener that takes the people who are in front of him and kind of goes, just, just like that. It's hard to translate, so that's why we have the Sermon on the Mount the way we do. Um, then the second week, Sam, um, what Sam brought us was essentially the topic sentence of the, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Now, this talk that I'm doing goes really hand in hand with Sam. So if there are any bits that I miss... I would listen to Sam's talk, and if there are any bits that he, well, he didn't, he was actually pretty thorough. So this is more of like applied examples of what he talked about two weeks ago. So if, if you can't remember what he said or you missed it, take his talk and this talk together. Um, but this week, what Jesus does is he's kind of had his big opener, he's given us his topic sentence and his main thesis, and this is where he gets into the meat of it and starts to apply uh, this sermon to some practical examples. Now, before we start reading um, from Matthew chapter 5, I want to address a tension that we encounter really strongly in this passage, uh, which is a really simple question, which is, does the law, the law being what we find in the Old Testament, does the law apply to us today? Now, if you're outside the church, then looking towards the church, uh, certainly from what you read in the media, it really does seem like Christianity is a rules-based religion. And, you know, in some ways, what Jesus talks about um, earlier in chapter 5, it, it seems to support that. You know, Jesus says, not a letter of the law will disappear. Uh, and he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, then you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Sam actually addressed that really well two weeks ago, so we're not going to go too much into those specific phrases here. But I think in the church, if you've been around for a little while, then you probably know better that it's not about following rules, but actually Christianity is about grace. It's about having a relationship with Jesus. You know, Romans 6.14, it says, we are no longer under law, but under grace. Um, Galatians 3.13, the Apostle Paul actually describes the law as a curse. But then, 
when you hit some particular topics, it feels like the law is still very much there. And we find this particularly when we talk about Christian sexual ethics. You know, we believe that we're under grace, not under the law, but then suddenly, whenever sex comes up, suddenly the laws are back. And you look broadly at the church, take a step back and look at the church in the West today, and there is so much disagreement over these kind of topics, isn't there? And it's not just about progressive versus conservative thought, which drives me nuts, but it's actually, I think, about the deeper question which sits at the heart of this series, how are we to live? in response to Jesus. When we receive the grace and the goodness of God in our lives, how do we live differently as a result? So now that you have that tension tugging at your heartstrings, let's pull open the passage and let's tug even harder. So we're going to, so we're taking, uh, so we're in Matthew 5, if you want to read along. We're starting from verses 21 and we're going down to uh, verse 30. And we're going to do it in two chunks just so I don't completely freak you out. But let's read. So uh, Matthew chapter 5, starting from 21, I'm reading from the NIV. It says, "You you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, but anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, And you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. We okay? It gets gets more intense, so hopefully you're still okay and still with me. Let's just unpack this passage just a little bit and just quickly go over what we've just read. So the first few words here, it says, you have heard, or it effectively says, you have heard it said that. And this is a pattern that we are going to encounter um, in, in our next reading and for the next few weeks' worth of sermons. Um, what Jesus is doing here is he's actually quoting part of um, the law in the Old Testament, Exodus 20:13. It's one of the Ten Commandments where, uh, where God says, through Moses, do not murder. Now, it's important to point out here that what Jesus is addressing, what Jesus is trying to kind of um, critique if you will, in this sermon, it's, he's not critiquing the law itself. What he's critiquing is the faulty interpretation of the law that the people surrounding him uh, were working with. Now, obviously, we don't live in their time, but what we can extrapolate is that there was some pretty funky teaching going around when it came to some of these commandments. And you can assume that what they were teaching is, well, don't commit murder, but anything up to that is fine. The question they were asking was really, how close can I get to the line before I cross it? The next words that Jesus says is, he says, but I say to you. And so this pattern is really important. You have heard it said that, but I say to you, and then he goes on to provide something else. And all through, for the rest of Matthew 5, this is the pattern that Jesus uses for his teaching. So what does Jesus, so we have heard it said 
uh, to people long ago, we shall not murder. But what does Jesus say to us instead? Well, he says that not only if you murder, this law applies to you, but if you're angry with someone, if you have murder in your heart, would be a slightly more poetic way of saying it. Um, If you're angry, then this law applies to you too. Now, another really important caveat here, it's what Jesus is not saying is that murder and anger are the same. You know, I think that should be reasonably obvious. But what is actually going on here? Well, what Jesus is teaching his followers is to go beyond just what the law says, and he's asking them to think about what the law means. So it's not just what the law says, it's what does the law actually mean? And what we realize from this passage is the heart of the law is not about God controlling our behavior, but it's about God shaping our hearts and helping instruct us in the way that we should live as his followers. It's not just about being a people who avoid murder, although we would hope that you know, we'd probably avoid that too, but not, not just being a people who avoid murder, but that we would be a people who seek peace. He gives us two examples. He talks about holding a grudge. You know, if there's someone, if you have come to church and you're about to raise your hands and praise God and you realize that you hold a grudge or someone holds a grudge against you, go and sort it out. Go and sort it out and then come and worship God. He gives another example, going to court. If there is a disagreement that has got to the point of going to court, try and solve the problem on the way. Don't don't let it, you know, seek peace. Don't look to to other people to seek it for you. Seek it out yourself. Romans 12.8 says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You know, clearly, uh, even from this passage in Romans, it's not actually uh, possible to live at peace with everyone all the time. But what Jesus isn't saying here, he's not saying... He's not saying if you're angry, then you're sinning and you're bad and you're in trouble. What Jesus is saying is, as followers of of God, as followers of Jesus, we really, really value peace. He's going beyond just providing us a law, and he's providing us a heart posture that he wants us to have as his followers. Does that make sense? It doesn't? Oh, okay. Let's, Let's go back to the start of that section. No, let's not do that. Let's, let's have a look at another example. So what Jesus is doing here is, is throughout Matthew chapter 5, he's giving us these examples of laws that they'd be familiar with, and he's helping us see beyond just what it says to what it means. So let's have a look at another example. So let's read from Matthew uh, chapter 5, starting from verse 27. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Are we still okay? It's pretty full on, isn't it? Now, first of all, let me say, uh, please don't go home and mutilate yourself. Please don't do that. 
There is a very strong consensus within biblical scholarship that this is not actually telling us to to self-harm, to avoid sin. What Jesus is doing here is he's using hyperbole. He's, He's trying to make a point very, very strongly by using some slightly shocking language, which hopefully you were shocked when you heard that, because that's the idea. Um, But what we're seeing in this passage here is exactly the same pattern that we just looked about for murder. Jesus is saying, you have heard it said, and then he quotes the, the law, and he says, but I say to you, and he takes it even further. Once again, Jesus is taking what the law says and revealing what it means. So with this passage in mind, let's talk about sex. Nervous laughter. And you know why we need to have this conversation? Because we actually live in a culture where we are surrounded by sex all the time, whether we realize it or not. I don't know if you've noticed, but I I think that sex and sexuality have become defining parts of our identity according to our culture, perhaps more more than any other time in history. And sex drives so much of popular culture and advertising. We are surrounded by it all the time, whether we realize it or not. On the whole, I think that the church has not talked about this topic very well for a very long time. I think the way that the church has uh, talked about sex has ranged from um, kind of awkward, let's just kind of not touch that one, all the way to being actively repressive. And I want to confess to you right now that one of the things that I wish that Jen and I had have done better, or that me in particular in my role as teaching, is I wish that we had have talked about this more. I wish that we had have talked about this better. It's not just a theoretical or a theological issue that we're talking about here. Porn, sex outside of marriage, sex inside of marriage, they're all massive issues within the church that just don't get talked about enough. And there's so much shame, confusion, and brokenness that's wrapped up in this topic. You know, I think that the legalism that has surrounded this topic for so long has been a wonderful foothold for the enemy to get in. And I unfortunately know so many people um, who have been been caught up in shame or been shamed uh, because of their history, because of their past, and left the church. Talked about a lot of people I know who've left the church, haven't I? What is Jesus saying in this passage? Well, he is definitely not saying that sex is bad. He's not saying that at all. Hopefully that's clear. He's also not saying that sexual desire is bad. That might not be so obvious. You know, the Bible doesn't have a low view of sex. In fact, it's quite the opposite. There's a reason that that every human is born with sexual desire because it's part of our design. It's part of the design for humanity. It's how our our species increases. It's part of the original command back in Genesis to go forth and multiply and fill the earth. But sex is a little bit like fire. You know, fire is good and life-giving. It's wonderful for providing us warmth and even keeping us alive when it's cold. But also, it belongs uh, in a certain place. It belongs in the fireplace. You know, it needs to be treated with caution and respect. 
And in exactly the same way that we treat fire with the caution and respect that it deserves, we need to treat sex in the same way. You know, sex is good and life-giving, but it belongs inside covenant relationship of marriage. And that's something that's so clear throughout the scriptures. So God doesn't hate sex. In fact, he loves it. He designed it. But he knows how important it is and he knows the damage that it can cause when it's used the wrong way. Now, I realized that uh, in taking a very short uh, kind of moment to talk about this massive topic, I'm potentially opening a can of worms here. So what I'd love to do is give you some really quality reading uh, that if this, is, if this is something that either fascinates you um, or something that is, is a big deal for you, um, here's some great reading to start you off. Um, there's a book called The Deeply Formed Life that I think I've recommended about 30 times over the last few months um, by a guy called Rich Villadas. There are two chapters in there that deal with, this, with sex in a way that's really new to me. Um, you know, he, he talks about sex uh, as a part of the overall, um, as part of intimacy. And he deals with this topic in a way that is just as applicable to people who are married as people who aren't. And so it's a really fantastic read, and he gives you a few more recommendations if you really want to get into the topic. So Deeply Formed Life, Rich Villadas. I've recommended it enough. If you haven't read it, read it yet, please do. It's very good. Um, another book, uh, which I am about halfway through, but I'm, I'm, I think I'm ready to recommend it now, um, is a book called A War of Loves by David Bennett. Um, aside from the fact that I went to school with him, and he's now a theologian in Oxford, which is very cool. Um, he's, so he shares... It, the book is not a theology book. It's very easy to read. It's basically him sharing his story. But in doing that, he touches on sexuality, homosexuality, singleness, and celibacy in a way that's unlike anything I've ever seen. And so I highly recommend that book, A War of Loves by David Bennett. Um, and finally, if um, porn is something that you struggle with personally or you've got a heart to see people set free from porn addiction... Um, there's a group called Fight the New Drug um, who I follow on Instagram who posts some really, really good stuff. Um, they've got some great articles on their website. They're not a Christian organization, but the way that they approach the topic is totally shame-free, totally guilt-free, and it's actually fantastic. Really good resource. You know, Jesus wants our sexuality and our desires to be deeply formed. He wants us to be in control of them rather than them in control of us. And my hope in starting this conversation tonight is that we as God's church would be able to talk much more openly about sex and sexuality. We'd be able to celebrate it for what it is, but also bring healing in all the ways that we, the church, have misrepresented it to ourselves and to the world. That's my hope. So... With view of that passage, with view of our passage on murder, how do we live? How do we live differently? Well, let's take a step back and look, let's look at these passages as a whole because I think there's an important thread that runs underneath them that doesn't become apparent until we consider the death and the resurrection of Jesus. You see, up until Jesus arrived on the scene, up until Jesus brought us the ultimate sacrifice, the way the law worked was you followed the rules and you did the things so that you could have a relationship with God. We do the things 
And then we get the relationship with God. When Jesus dies and rises again, the order of that flips around. We have a relationship with God. That is our starting point. If you say yes to Jesus, if he is the Lord and Savior of your life, then you have a relationship with Jesus. And there is nothing that can take that away. No brokenness, no hurt, no pain. Jesus is yours. You receive God's spirit and he begins a process of transformation in your life. It's totally nuts that it would work that way. It makes no sense, but that's what we call grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. So the way, the the order, it flips around. So suddenly it's not we do the things and then we have a relationship with God. Now it's we have a relationship with God and as a result, it changes the way we live. We don't follow the law. We don't do the things in the law because we want to seek God. We already have God. And so as, as a reflection of his presence in our lives, we change the way we live. And importantly, what Jesus is teaching us here is that it's not so much about just doing what the law says, although in some cases it's a very good idea, but it's actually about learning what the law means. Let me give you a really concrete example of how this works um, that hopefully will lighten the mood just a little bit. Um, So Davey is, is now two, which is crazy. That happened very quickly. But anyway, David is now too. And one of the things that David loves to do more than anything else, purely because of how it stirs me up, is he loves to drum on the table with his spoons, like knife and fork or uh, spoon and fork. And so he'll just sit there going bang, 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 and he's caused quite a lot of damage on the table. So we have created a rule in our house, which is that we don't, uh, we don't hit our spoons on the table. And if he does hit his spoon on the table and we ask him not to and he keeps doing it, He loses the privilege of feeding himself. We feed him instead. Um, Now, this rule was not created because of some arbitrary power trip. You know, we're not just lording it over him just for a laugh. We're doing it because we want to instill in him a respect for our things. You know, there's, there's actually a principle that sits behind the rule, isn't it? And so when we say, Davey, please don't, like, damage the table by smacking your spoon against the table... And, and he complies, he's beginning to learn this value of actually caring for and respecting the things that we own. Now, when he grows up, maybe when he's a teenager, maybe when he's a bit older than that, we'll find out, um, we won't need that rule anymore. <laughs> Hopefully. <We'll laughs> That's all the parents of teenagers going, ha, 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 just you wait. Uh, yes. Um, but in theory, when Davy grows up, we won't need the rule anymore And not because it's okay for him to start damaging the table now. It's because, hopefully, he will come to understand the value that sits underneath the rule. Was the rule a bad thing? No, it wasn't. Is the rule now necessary? No, it isn't. Does Davey damage the table? Hopefully not. We'll find out. (laughs) So how, how do we live? What does this all boil down to? Rather than being a people who don't murder... Would we be a people who seek peace? Rather than be a people who don't commit adultery, let's be people who have a deeply formed understanding of sex and sexual desire. 
Rather than being a people who don't steal, let's be a people who are generous with our finances and resources. Let's be thankful that we're not under the law anymore, that our relationship with God is not predicated on us doing all the right things. Let's be thankful for that, but let's seek together to grow into the full maturity and to grow into the full understanding of who Christ wants us to be. Let's step into the design of who we are. Let's learn how to be God's people who actually shine a light into our society. There are so many passages that we could read to finish up this talk. It turns out that what we are talking about now is pretty much the Apostle Paul's main hobby horse. There are a lot of things that we could read, but I want to read to you one of my favorite passages um, of all time. It's, it's in Romans 12. And um, how are we going for time? Okay, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. Um, but I'm just going to read you a few verses, and I'm going to read them twice so that they sink in, th- that I think just sum this up so well. Um, Romans 6 is a great uh, chapter to read if you want to understand the ins and outs of this. Um, Roman, the whole of Romans 12 is really... Actually, the whole book of Romans is, is pretty much addressed to this very topic. But I just want to read you how Paul, I think, really well sums it up. Uh, in Romans 12, he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I'm just going to do two and three one more time, just so that it sinks in. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Why don't we stand and we're going to do some prayer ministry. Yeah! It's going to be awesome. I'm going to stand too. Awesome. Now, if you haven't done vineyard uh, prayer ministry before, this is not scary. I'm going to walk you through it and it's going to be okay. And I think some of us need some reminding of how prayer ministry works anyway. So, what we're going to do is in a moment, I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to come uh, and begin to work among us. Now, it's not that the Holy Spirit isn't already here. What we're inviting the Holy Spirit to do is actually come and start to minister to us because I really believe that what we've talked about tonight is going to hit on some pretty big things for some people. Now, the objective of prayer ministry is not that people would cry. It's not that people would fall on the floor or shake. The idea of prayer ministry is that we get together as God's people, we encourage one another, we pray for one another, and we call one another forward. And that the Holy Spirit um, can take the words that we've, we've heard and that we've spoken about, take those words and make them reality in our lives. That's what we're trying to do in prayer ministry. Now, if, you, if something like quite personal and sensitive has come up in this, you don't have to disclose that to anyone. Um, If it's major life stuff, I would encourage you to get professional help. Talk to someone. But you you are not having to disclose anything here 
It can be as simple as just putting up your hand to receive prayer and having someone pray a blessing over you. God can work with that. He knows what he needs to do. So I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to come. We're going to wait in silence for a little while. I might get Sam to come. Sam, can you come up like now, but then just hold off playing? We're not trying to like create a vibe or anything. We're just getting God to do his thing. So I'm going to invite the Spirit to come. We're going to wait for a little while, uh, and then I'm going to say a few things, and then we'll have um, an opportunity to pray together. So uh, if it helps you, you can put your hands out like this. That's just a sign of, yep, God, I'm ready to receive. Uh, You can kneel on the floor. um, You can stand awkwardly. That's fine too. So Holy Spirit, come and move among us now. We invite you, Lord Jesus, to